Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking from top academics at the University of Cambridge and beyond. Sanjay Joshi is the co-founder of SoGive, a database of charities, analysing their impact and cost-effectiveness. SoGive helps donors make informed choices about where to donate and helps clarify how much of a charity's impact is attributable to each donation. Building on our conversations with George Rosenfeld and Eve McCormick, in this episode we discuss how SoGive goes about analysing charities and their cost-effectiveness, the difference in incentives and pressures between for-profit and non-profit enterprises, misconceptions about administrative costs and senior pay, as well as the challenges and opportunities of non-profit entrepreneurship. Here's the interview. So a few years ago, you started SoGive. Can you just tell me about the story that led up to that and what prompted you to start it? So the genesis story of SoGive is quite a difficult one because um, there's probably more than one origin story that I could tell, uh, all of which has an element of truth to it. Um, So let me just pick one of them. And, um, and and I'll give you that story. So um, I think you, you could start it very early. Um, I think in 2010, um, I, I got a, you know, a big pay rise moving from one job to another. Uh, and I was prior to that already being paid more than I needed to live. Um, and that was a really big impetus for me to think about where I was donating for myself. And at the same time, I was working in finance, and my job was to analyse companies. And the thing that felt really missing to my mind was, um, you know, we have this whole industry of people in finance who are analysing companies. Um, I want that to inform me when I'm donating. And I was looking really hard for it, and uh, I didn't find it. So I was thinking about how I could apply the the thinking that I'd seen um, in my day job to the charity sector. Um, fast forward a few years, I had by this stage um, uh, to inform my thinking. I had been a trustee of several organisations. I'd done pro bono consulting for several more. Um, and uh, I uh, I started SoGive. And um, uh, this started with uh, a spreadsheet that I put together uh, just me in my my living room, basically, um, sitting down and saying, "Well, you know, if I wanted to ask these two questions, um, you know, what what would those answers look like for a bunch of different charities?" And with the experience I had, I was able to find that information, and I just started typing it out um, one afternoon, and I thought, "Huh, that's interesting." And then I I nearly, you know, I closed down the spreadsheet and it said do you want to save this spreadsheet and I thought oh do I want to save this spreadsheet uh, and I'm glad to say I did um, because if I, I hadn't you know the world would, would probably be uh, you know my life at least would be a different place now um, so that was that was the start of it uh, and then yeah uh, lots of things happened since then and now we've had um, over 100 different people have contributed to uh, to uh, the volunteer analysis within the database, and uh, you know we're moving something like a million pounds per annum uh, in terms of uh, the amount of donations that that come through the platform, and hopefully many more donations beyond that are influenced uh, without coming through. So give, 
Um, and uh, we have a functioning web platform that has been used by uh, uh, a countless number of people um, and uh, the number of charities in the database. I, I lose track, certainly in the hundreds, probably the thousands by now. And maybe in a bit more detail, could you just explain what SoGive does um, nowadays? So there's a few different um, there's a few different users. Some of them are users who use the online platform. Um, so this is um, uh, events. Um, so if your listenership is uh, in in the Cambridge Cambridge University body, then um, you may be familiar with some of the events that that are, are using. Um, that are using SoGive, the, the May Week Alternative, for example, uh, event uses um, the SoGive donation platform, um, and and there are uh, other events uh, elsewhere as well. Um, we are also uh, have done some work with financial advisors. Um, so the idea here is, if a financial advisor looks after the money of their client, well, the client's donations are part of their money matters, and. Um, uh, we've also developed a product for corporates as well to use to to involve their employees in corporate giving. Um, so those are the main areas. We've also flirted with a few other areas as well. So weddings, um, we have a, a wedding donation platform. This is if you are are getting married and you already have you know all of the crockery that you need you know uh, you know this is a pretty normal situation for people who have already lived together before they get married um you know a gift list might not be the most valuable thing for you um and so you know those people might want to have a, a wedding registry that involves donations to charity instead um so we've we've developed that product uh, and a few other gift related products as well so i'll just and you keep a database of the charities you've evaluated is that publicly available it is. Um, so um, at the moment, if you go onto the SoGiv website and have a look around, you will find uh, all of that, uh, that information. Um, you, can search for, you can search for a charity. You can find most charities, not, not all of them. You know, there are 200,000 charities in the UK. So we haven't got every single one of them, but we've got quite a lot of the big names. Um, and you'll be able to see quite easily the answers to to the two questions that SoGive asks, how much does it cost for the charity to do a thing, where we've been able to find that information, um, and and what do you get for your money? Um, and, uh, you know, somewhat hidden away, perhaps, um, but we do have write-ups of the analysis, and that's also available on the website. So there are other charity evaluators in the world. I could mention GiveWell or Animal Charity Evaluators. Um these were established prior to SoGive, I think I'm right in saying. Um, so what does SoGive do differently to these um, evaluators or what do they do in addition to what, for instance, GiveWell does? Um, uh, SoGive is broader than than uh, GiveWell and it's broader than animal charity evaluators. Um, so um, GiveWell... Uh, has an approach that's very focused on global health um, for good reasons. Uh, animal charity evaluators focuses on animals for good reasons. Um, so gives approach is let's start with the most popular charities and go through those and then broaden that to cover as many other charities as possible, um, lots of small charities as well. Um, and the aim here is to take 
our our thinking and you know our, our philosophy is not very different to that of of GiveWell in terms of how we do analysis, but take that thinking and and reach a, a broader donating public. Okay, great. So we're going to talk about why we should care in the first place about the impact that charities have and about quantifying that. Um, how SoGive in particular goes about measuring those impacts, and also any challenges that you faced yourself in setting up and running SoGive day to day. But we'll begin with talking about the motivation behind this. So I guess I'll start by asking, um, do you think people, for the most part, place much stock in the impact that their donations have? If they don't, then I'm curious to know why you think that is. Um, So it's, it's an interesting question and a hard one to answer in the abstract. And the reason for that is that donor behaviour is actually a really complex thing. Um, so on the one hand, if you ask people um, a question phrased something like, when you're donating to charity, do you care about where your money goes and what it achieves? Almost everyone says yes. However, when you say, aha, people care about where their money goes and what it achieves, and then put in a huge amount of effort into creating a great big database that tells you exactly that, and then produce the answers of that for people, that starts to dichotomize the, pe- the way that people respond. So some people respond with, wow, that's awesome. That really tells me something. And, and I'm really excited by that. And some people sort of predictably, I guess, respond with, well, um, you know, perhaps because of a sort of sunk cost bias, they've already been donating to a particular charity for a long time, um, or for other reasons, um, they, the, their actual interest in, um, in seeing real analysis on where their money goes and how much it achieves um, starts to, uh, to, to fall apart. Um, and I guess, you know, to, to get to the heart of the question, um, sometimes people are really caring about this for what you might call consequentialist reasons, um, which means that um, when they're donating, they want to make sure that the money actually makes change and has impact. Um, but they might be donating for entirely other reasons as well. You know, it might be something like... Um, you know, my family or someone has benefited from something and I'm donating not because I want to make a change in the world. I want to sort of say thank you or something like that. Um, so th- there's a mixture of motivations when people are donating. That's an interesting distinction that I hadn't thought about before. The difference between um, people's responses when explicitly asked about the extent to which they care about impact, for instance, and... Um, the preferences and values revealed through actual donor behavior. So um, it's very interesting to hear that, uh, as, as, as you say, um, cost effectiveness is not the, the biggest uh, thing or maybe not the only thing that people care about when they donate. And then I guess the, the natural question to, to follow on from that is uh, do these differences matter? Is the impact between charities significant and uh, should this be something that we we worry about? So uh, that's a great question. And I think um, uh, when people hear about the SoGive approach, 
they often assume that uh, that the answer is that it doesn't matter. So um, let's just expand on that for a moment because SoGiv cares about cost effectiveness. And that means that we, whenever looking at a charity, we almost always ask two questions. We ask how much does it cost a charity to do something? And what does the beneficiary get for your money? And um, before looking at the data, a lot of people imagine that this might not tell us very much. They imagine that it, you'll see some charities which are cheap and have only a small amount of benefit and other charities that do work that's more expensive but has a bigger amount of benefit. Um, in fact, it's not as, as nice uh, an outcome as that. Um, and the reasons for that are, are incentives. So we actually see lots of charities that are relatively cheap, but actually have quite a lot of impact per pound donated, and other charities that do work that's really expensive, but have a small amount of impact per pound donated. Um, and so this is a really, really weird thing, right? I mean, you know, you, you would hope that there would be some kind of, um, if you don't mind me quoting Adam Smith, some kind of invisible hand somewhere, that, that somehow magically makes sure that, that this doesn't happen, that, you know, the invisible hand should tell us to somehow make sure that the cheap things have a small amount of impact and the, the expensive things have a big amount of impact. And that invisible hand isn't there. So why is that? Um, and, and it's all down to, to the original question about, uh, about incentives. So can, can you elaborate a bit more about uh, what incentives, I guess, kind of make the charity space so different and means that there is this uh, like lack of a correlation between cost and, and impact? Um, so to, to answer that, put yourselves in the shoes of somebody who's running a charity. So imagine that, you know, maybe it's a small charity and you've got a, you know, a team of five people working for you, or maybe it's a big charity, it doesn't matter. Um, and um, my question is, what do you need to do to make sure that um, you haven't failed at your job? Now, you might think uh, naively that the answer is deliver good outcomes for the charity's beneficiaries. Um, and, and in a sense, that to a certain extent, that's true. And to a certain extent, um, people will, will feel that because I'm sure that people in the charity sector really are motivated to do good in the world. But also, to really make sure that you don't fail in a really visceral way, you don't have to actually achieve outcomes for your beneficiaries. All you have to do is to make sure that you've successfully fundraised to keep the team that's working for you in their job. So, if we imagine now a charity which has got, on the one hand, the stakeholder that is the donor, and on the other hand, a stakeholder that is the beneficiary, that creates a world where the really important stakeholder is the donor. And so the sort of uh, the incentives are the charities need to keep the donors happy. They probably want to uh, also keep the beneficiaries happy, but the incentives aren't there to make sure that they really work at achieving that. I guess the relevant contrast for some for-profit enterprise is that the funder and the beneficiary tend to be the same person, right? When you go and buy some goods, um, you benefit from having bought them 
And you also fund these people by giving them your money. And I guess it becomes clear then that there's a clear incentive to manufacture these goods in a kind of effective or efficient way, because if you didn't do that, then you just lose out in competition. And um, I take it that the point you're making is that the fact that the funder and beneficiaries are separated, typically in the charitable space, means those incentives go away. Is that right? That's exactly it. Um, And um, I I do talk exactly as you say about this concept of funder beneficiary separation. Um, And and the fact that funders and beneficiaries are not the same person um, is the root cause uh, of the lack of invisible hand. Now, when we talk about charitable effectiveness, lots of people like to emphasise the importance of minimising um, overheads, in particular administrative overheads, and for instance, you know, CEO pay and so on. And indeed, lots of charity evaluators also factor these things in quite highly. Um, I want to know, is that a misguided way of evaluating charities or is there something to it? Um, the short answer is yes, it is misguided. Um, so three things that I think are potentially relevant to expand on here. One of them is um, why is it misguided? Um, and, you know, that involves considering, um, you know, why is it tempting in the first place and, and why is it actually wrong? Um, a second one is, um, let's try and steal man the overheads thing. Like maybe it's useful in some scenarios. Um, and and the third thing is, you know, let's dig deeper into why. So, um, you know, why do people think this way? Um, you know, what are the deeper roots of that? Uh, so yes, it's it's a it's a rich topic. Um, Shall I start by talking about why people are uh, interested in this metric in the first place? Absolutely, that'd be great. Um, I think it um, combines a really uh, appealing set of things. On the one hand, you want to uh, make sure that uh, there's some sort of sense of rigour uh, that's gone into uh, your decision. And if there's been some numbers somewhere, that helps to give this sense of rigour. Um, even if the numbers aren't necessarily helpful numbers, you know, it kind of, it's reassuring. Um, And the other thing is that people have a real fear about uh, about being swindled. They have this real dislike of the idea that maybe they're going to, you know, give their hard-earned money away. And then actually, it doesn't go to the real cause that, you know, maybe... Um, and this, this people really don't like this. You know, maybe it'll go to someone who's actually better off than themselves. Um, and that that's really, uh, you know, uh, uh, the root of what people don't like. And um, and so, um, you know, that's why when people are talking about um, excessive overheads, often in the same breath, they'll talk about inflated charity CEO pay. Um, they, you know, they really don't like the idea that there are and people working in charities who get these big six-figure salaries, and they're saying, "But you know, I, you know, that's that's these people are more rich than I am." Um, so, so these things are are all um, uh, are all motivators uh, for people, um, and so we uh, 
tried to work out whether there's any kind of grain of truth in them. So, um, so maybe, you know, um, the amount that's spent on the CEO salary could be material. Um, and, you know, maybe it's a big deal. Um, and so we looked into this and for the largest charities, the amount spent on the salary of the CEO is somewhere in the range of um, 0.03% up to 0.15% of the overall charity spend. Um, so, you know, if you're thinking about, uh, you know, what's going to actually happen with your money, like if you if you care about results and if you care about the change that your money's making in the world, then if you're giving £10 and, um, you know, three pence of that is going towards the, the CEO salary, then it's it's possibly um, outside of the the realms of materiality to to get too worked up about it. Um, uh, and so, um, at this stage, you might think, okay, but maybe I've just you know rigged the numbers here because I just looked at the biggest charities. Um, so I think looking at the biggest charities is sort of reasonable in that lots of people donate there. But let's try looking at smaller charities as well. So when we look at smaller charities, it's actually very rare to find um, uh, the uh, highest paid staff member being paid much more than about £60,000. Um, so, um, so you know, there is, there is disclosure requirements in the accounts and, you know, I think I'd struggle to even find an example uh, that I know of, uh, where where the charity is small and they're they're paid more than that. So um, you know, this if they're being paid sort of forty five, fifty, fifty five thousand pounds, this this actually seems pretty reasonable for a senior staff member. Um, you know, leading a, a small organisation, I, I don't think that's unreasonable. Um, so overall, um, it's it seems it's very hard to find a good evidence based way of getting worked up about CEO pay. And lastly, um, on that topic, um, there's a group called NCVO, which is a charity sector body. And they did a review of senior pay in the charity sector. And they found that um, if you take a sort of a typical person in a, in a moderately senior to, to very senior management role in a charity, they are on average getting paid 25% less than they would do for an equivalent role uh, in the for-profit sector. Um, so. This is, I think, not surprising. Uh, you know that that on, on balance, people are 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 paying being paid a bit less because of the fact that they're in the charity sector. Yeah, that makes sense. So maybe you're right that people are, um, on the whole, placing too much stock or worrying too much about CEO or senior pay. What about the point about overheads and administrative costs? That seems like something you want to. Um, minimise if you're a charity. Is that right? Um, in short, no. Um, so um, so there's, there's more than one way of explaining this. So let's take one way of looking at it. Let's think of, of uh, a charity. Let's imagine that um, you have a charity and it does counselling for, uh, for children who've experienced trauma, for example. Um, and um, let's find the um, the uh, the element of of that which is which counts as overhead. You know, this is the bit that's in, in inverted commas the bad spend. 
So we look at the salary of the counsellor who's doing the actual counselling. You know, that's that's going to the cause. That's definitely not admin. That's real, legitimate charitable spend. Um, what about the rent for the room in which the counselling happens? Well, I mean, the counselling has to happen in a room. Like, they can't be under a tree or something. Like, it's legitimate core charitable spend to do that. And then what about um, the computer that the counsellor works on? Well, that's legitimate spend as well. And what about the boss for the person who is doing the counselling? Well, that's legitimate spend as well. And what about the, the, the idea that you've got to have somebody who's going to do the accounts so that we can review all of this stuff? Well, that's legitimate. I mean, we, de- we definitely want all of that. And then by the time you've gone through every single item of spend, you realise that either it is legitimate charitable spend that is going towards achieving the actual charity's goal, or they're just being fraudulent. So what we really realise is um, we don't really mind admin. Like we we want people to have things like, um, you know, a toilet to go to if they needed to go to the toilet or, um, you know, a room or or accounting. We want all of those things. Um, What we don't want is fraud. Um, And and so it's actually a very different thing from from admin spend. Is there an analogy here to just plain old for-profit shopping why do people not care so much about administrative overheads when they're just buying things um so this is um this is a great question the answer comes down i think to fund a beneficiary separation this concept that we were thinking about earlier and so if you imagine that you are in car phone warehouse for example and you're buying yourself a mobile phone um in, you know, imagine yourself in front of the, the salesperson in the shop, um, and um, you know, if if I was in that position, I'd be asking two questions. I would ask, "How much does the phone cost, and what do I get for my money?" What I don't ask is, "How much is Apple's CEO paid?" I don't ask, "How much does Samsung spend on overheads?" This is not my problem. Um, instead, you know, I, I leave that to them. I leave it to Apple. I leave it to Samsung to work out that problem as long as they can deliver the bottom line. Uh, what is the overall cost to me as a consumer? Um, and, and a key insight behind the SoGive approach is to say that when we are donating, we are buying outcomes for beneficiaries. And so we want to do the same thing. So... So far, um, we've talked about um, why cost impact is important and how there can be this great variation between charities. And we've also talked about why uh, some, let's say, very simplistic indicators like uh, admin overheads or CEO pays might be misguided. But before we talk about um, what SoGive does instead, I just actually want to take a step back and maybe talk a bit about intentions. Um, Because one thing that I'm very aware of is when I talk to people about, uh, you know, why we might care about evaluating charities and how impactful they are. Um, A lot of people, I think, are hesitant um, to to have that conversation and to to talk about, um, you know, auditing charities or or looking at their impactfulness because they feel it almost misses the point of charity, which is a very emotional action. And, you know, if I do some good, that's still good. Um, So can, can you talk a bit more about why or what kind of uh, motivation or intent you have uh, with SoGive when you are evaluating these these charities? SoGive is really all about emotion. It's all about heart. Um, but 
people are emotional with their giving in different ways. So for me and and for the SoGive approach as well, if we see that for a given amount of money, we can help 100 people and for a given amount of money with a different charity, we can help one person and assume that the amount of help per person is the same, then for us, it is a real matter of heart to look at all of those 100 people and say, nobody is a statistic. For us, it's a deeply emotional thing to say that, you know, we want to make Stalin wrong when he said that one death is a tragedy and a million deaths is a statistic. We want to make a world where people are looking at all of those statistics and not dismissing them as not being real people anymore. We want to make a world where people see all of those statistics as real human beings or animals or whatever it is that, that, that matter. And that is the thing that, that motivates us and that drives us. And that, that is a deeply emotional thing. And, you know, we, we also understand that there's a, there are different perspectives and people won't necessarily see it that way. Um, and we're not going to try and change everyone. Um, but we know that there are other people out there who feel the same way and we want to serve those people. I, I find that that framing very interesting of uh, kind of comparing different outcomes. And as you mentioned, um, you know, when you I think when you ask anybody the, the question, uh, would you rather save 100 lives or would you save one life for um, a given a given donation? I think that has a very clear uh, answer when it, when it's framed like that. But I do feel, um, you know, when you talk about charity, uh, you know, in, in normal terms or, or between normal people, it very rarely gets framed like that. It's always um, the question of, oh, do you want to save this person? Never really talking about what other options or what kind of trade-off or, or in economics terms, what opportunity cost um, there, there really is. And I do think that's, that's something very interesting that's missing from the narrative a lot of the times. Uh, absolutely right. And, and you know, I think um, this is why it felt so countercurrent for so give to start thinking in this way when we when we set up the organization a few years ago um and and i guess you know what we're saying is the reality is uh you know the sort of force multiplier of charities do vary and for a given amount of money different amounts of good will happen um and so when we are comparing um lifeboats with malaria nets it is not one lifeboat launch versus uh, one life saved with a malaria net. It's one lifeboat launch versus several lives saved with malaria nets. And um, that change in framing is the way that we want to, to change the narrative in the charity sector. So let's talk about evaluating charities then and, and SoGive's method. So you mentioned the the, the malaria nets and the, the lifeboats example. Um, those are clearly very two very different outcomes that require a lot of thinking to see what impact they have and what cost they have as well. Uh, and you've kind of hinted at this before, but um, how do you start your framework with tackling these, these very difficult questions? So our analytical framework has two approaches. One of them is the broad and shallow analytical method, and the other one is the in-depth analytical approach. Um, 
The broad and shallow approach can be summarised as the two-question method that I mentioned before. It involves asking how much does it cost for the charity to do a thing? And secondly, what does the beneficiary get for your money? In truth, that could be used to summarise the in-depth method as well. Uh, However, the the in-depth method typically involves much more tailored and in-depth analysis to, to really get to the heart of those questions. So let's start with the shallow method uh, first and this this two-question framework that you mentioned. So when we're talking about uh, cost or benefit to the beneficiary, where do you look to find this, this information? Uh, do you talk to people? Uh, do you uh, look for things in the internet? Do you look at research papers? Uh, where, where do you start? So ideally, we'd like to find the information in the public domain. Um, we do also um, uh, get the information by asking charities for it, but uh, we do less of that because there's bigger overheads involved both for ourselves and for the charities as well. Um, and so we've, uh, I guess part of the reason why um, I was in a good position to found SoGive is that I'd been involved with charities and, and charity accounting for many years um, prior to founding SoGive, so I was well positioned to to tease out this information from what's in the public domain. Um, and, and we've, over the years, developed a method that involves looking at uh, the information that's um, on the Charity Commission website, uh, where you can get hold of the accounts, pick up the information, and um, put it into the SoGive database. Um, and that that often, but not always, gets us the answers to um, the, the SoGive two-question method. So when we look at these two questions, um, costs seem almost very straightforward. That seems like, uh, you know, when you look at the, the financial accounts that, that you mentioned on the, the Charity Commission, they're almost legally required to, to mention these and to break these down accordingly. And then uh, you can look at uh, the different things that they spend money on. But impact seems uh, a much, much harder thing to, to measure and to compare between as well. Um, what kind of challenges do you face when you want to look at the impact that uh, a charity has? So let's start by um, introducing a concept here called the theory of change. Um, Now, uh, I don't want to take too much credit for this. The the framework called the theory of change has actually been kicking about in the charity sector for many years and long before um, before SoGive existed. Um, But we find it a useful uh, approach, and so we we leverage that. Um, And uh, a theory of change typically involves saying, what are the inputs into the charity's work? Uh, and this might be volunteer time, or it might be donors' money. And, and from SoGive's perspective, we're interested in donor money. And then that leads to activities, which leads to outputs. And then the outputs lead to outcomes. Um, and outputs and outcomes are charity sector jargon. So when I talk about outputs, what I mean are the direct effects of a charity's work. Um, This might mean um, a a lifeboat launch. It might mean a a mile of cycle network maintained. Um, It might mean a malaria net. It might be a vaccination. Um, But outputs are not typically of intrinsic value. We don't fund charities because of the intrinsic pleasure of having a needle stuck in a child's arm. Um, we, we, we care about the knock-on effects of that work. Um, we, these things are typically referred to as outcomes. 
Um, so for, uh, you know, for those examples, um, you know, we might, we might fund lifeboat launches because we want lifeboats to save lives at sea uh, or, or do various other things. Um, and uh, we might fund, uh, you know, miles of cycle network because we want people to cycle more and use cars less. Um, and that might lead to um, ultimate impacts such as the impact on climate change or the impact on human health. So how do you differentiate between these two things then, between outputs and outcomes? Um, do charities reliably report the outcomes that they achieve or um, uh, to what degree of confidence can you can you measure these things in the public domain? Um, I suppose the short answer is no. Um, so uh, there is no requirement on charities to state in the public domain their outputs or their outcomes. Um and and this maybe it seems kind of shocking in a way. Um, you know, you you might think that um, that for many people at least, uh, charities exist in order to um, in order to do good in the world and to make change and to to achieve things. And so, to have reporting that doesn't uh, allude to this at all seems uh, seems amiss. Uh, however, um, fortunately in the UK. We do have uh, that information being reported quite often, um, not because of uh, any requirement to do so, but because charities often anticipate that people might be interested. Um, typically, this happens at the outputs level. Um, charities will often say, you know, this is how many people we trained, this is how many people we reached, this is how many people we helped, um, you know, this is how many malaria nets we distributed, that sort of level of, of information. They do not often in include information at the level of outcomes. So they do not often say, um, uh, you know, this is the number of, of um, prisoners that received our training program. And also this is um, uh, how many people then ended up not um, uh, re-offending. You know, that, that sort of outcome level information uh, is not often there. Um, also, um, outcomes are hard. You know, assessing that is difficult. And we've also discussed earlier that the incentives aren't there to invest really hard in, in assessing those outcomes. So what that means is that where the information does exist, um, it's normally sensible to treat it with a certain level of scepticism. Could you maybe give an example of when you looked at a particular charity using this framework? And did you come up with any surprising or counterintuitive results? Um, there certainly have been a, a range of results uh, that we've seen uh, across the many charities we've reviewed. I think the, the biggest surprise probably comes from the extent of the difference. So, for example, let's say that um, what you cared about was um, saving lives. Um, there are some charities where... Um, the cost per life saved could be well into the hundreds of thousands of pounds. Um, and uh, uh, other charities where that might be much, much lower, you know, um, we, we might be looking at about £1,500 or, or £2,000 or so uh, in order, or £3,000 maybe to achieve uh, a life saved or a life saved equivalent. Um, this, this sort of range of differences uh, was, was a big surprise for me. 
Um, so if we maybe drill down into specific examples, I alluded to lifeboats earlier. Um, the, the, if we look at the number of lives saved by the RNLI and divide that by the total cost of running RNLI's operations, we get to around £400,000. Um, and so uh, if we compare that to another organisation that saves lives, the Against Malaria Foundation, um, under suitable modelling, we get to a cost per life saved that's, um, to simplify the numbers, below £4,000. Um, so there we've got this factor of 100 going on. I think that the surprising thing for me um, was not that there would be differences. You know, I, I think that before embarking on the SoGive enterprise, I expected that. I, I think you know we could have sat in our armchairs and and realised all of the things about in, incentives that we discussed before, and we could have worked out without seeing the data that um, uh, that we don't have market efficiency, that we don't have an invisible hand. But what I didn't realise, what did surprise me, is that the differences would be so big that factors of 100 or even 1,000 or more would be a, a common feature uh, when we do these comparisons. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, now, one worry you might have is that when you pick a particular metric, then you can compare outcomes quite straightforwardly across different charities operating in different areas. But when it comes to comparing impact in the general sense across different metrics, that begins to look a lot trickier. Um, in particular, you might think it involves some kind of moral judgments or judgments about what is and isn't valuable. I want to know how you go about thinking about that, um, if at all. So... One of the things that helps with this is the fact that the um, the uh, differences are so big. So the fact that the differences are so big makes it easier to make those comparisons. Um, so to take an example, um, if we uh, compare one charity that provides um, a, a holiday for inner city children for the same cost as... Uh, the cost of saving two lives, then um, does there exist a, a set of value judgments such that we place more value on an inner city child having a holiday than two children, um, two children's lives saved? I mean, possibly, but I, I think that would be a pretty extreme tweaking of your value set in order to make that work. Um, and so, um, you know, actually making comparisons across very different outcomes becomes much easier. Um, another thing, though, is that it's not always that easy. So sometimes the comparisons are, are, are quite difficult. Um, here's another question. For the same money, would you rather uh, uh, save a life or would you rather have 250 people have a subsidised trip to an art gallery? I mean, I, I think I know the answer to that question, but I don't think it's obvious and I don't think everyone would necessarily agree on that one. Um, so in order to uh, back our work um, with, with yet more evidence um, and yet more data, um, we are about to, to perform some research. Um, and so using some of the comparisons that come up uh, in our analysis, we're going to put those to the people. So we're, we're going to perform a survey 
and we're going to ask people to, to do the very same comparisons that I've just described. Um, and uh, I, I think that for some of them, uh, it seems seems pretty likely that everybody will agree that um, two lives saved uh, is better than one child going on holiday. Um, but for 250 trips to an art gallery versus one life saved, um, I don't think I know yet what the what the survey results are going to say. And that will tell us something that will be interesting and valuable. So I think one of the worries that we might have with charity evaluators such as SoGive is that because you're very focused on outcomes and being able to, to quantify the impact is that you might gravitate towards those charities where that kind of information is available. And that means having um, a strong interest in things that we can measure and we can only measure things that happen now or that happen on an individual measurable scale, such as how many lives do we save or how many people can we uh, treat who have this disease. But other causes might be more intangible like uh, human rights or activism or research that might in the long run have very big impacts when they do achieve their cause. But at the moment, we have uh, no certainty about how much money they might need, how much funding or how many lives they might save in the future. Uh, At first glance, this is a reasonable concern and one that uh, has been raised many times. And uh, I think in the early days of SoGive, Um, it it had some merit. Um, So when we were starting out, uh, what do we do? We we look at all of the charities that there are um, and start start gathering data and insights about them. Um, I think at the moment, the the stronger bias at the moment is less on the things that uh, are measurable and more on the things that are popular. So, um, you know, I, I think that um, uh, a big part of what we do is look at uh, what are the most popular charities and go through those. And um, actually, research charities are very popular charities, for example. Um, and uh, we also look a, a little bit at campaigning. It comes up quite often. Um, uh, so lots of things that are very hard to measure come up in, in what we do. And in the earliest days of SoGive, our approach was to gather the data on the easiest to measure things. And for the things that were harder to measure, we simply observed um, this thing is harder to measure and and we left it at that. And as time has gone on, we've added more and more um, analysis to those. Harder to measure doesn't mean impossible to gain insight on. So with uh, biomedical research, uh, we have... Uh, done some analysis where we look at the the scale of uh, the impact of the condition and we compare it with the amount of spend that's happening um, and our our write-up on that takes into account what is the um, what is the level of tractability uh, within that particular cause area Um, so between all of those factors, um, we, we think that we can we can gain some insight on that, and, and we think it tells us something um, of 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 great uh, interest, and, and you know helps to to actually sort the wheat from the chaff when we're choosing between those different organisations. Um, so, so with um, with even with um, the, the the campaigning organisations, and, and again, campaigning is increasingly uh, the sorts of organisations that we are including in our analysis. Um, so. 
uh, you know, leveraging in some cases the work of, of uh, other partner organizations and sometimes work of our own. Um, we have cost effectiveness models on on campaigns, um, which involve looking at the cost of doing the work and comparing that with, um, you know, to what extent do we think that that organization has brought forward um, the, the outcomes that it's achieved, um, looking at, at, its, at its historic results. So all of those, those things are, are things that, um, in fact, uh, are within the purview of, of what we do. Um, so so um, in short, um, you know, in the earliest days of SoGive, we really did only focus on, on, the, um, on the most measurable things. And that's because we just started with the things that were most easy. Um, and as time has gone on, um, we've expanded to cover more and more of the difficult to measure things as well. And that's because, uh, because they're popular and, and people want, uh, want answers on them. So this is a very similar question, but as presumably you know, some charitable interventions um, deliver their outcomes with really high confidence because the evidence is uh, really available. Others deliver outcomes with much less certainty and lower confidence but they potentially carry a, a far higher upside if they pay off, such that their um, impact might be comparable in expectation. Um, some people think the fact that you're less confident about that second option counts against it. And I'm curious whether you factor in uncertainty into your evaluation. Um, is the fact that you have lower confidence about a particular intervention um, something bad in itself? Um, I think that there's a really interesting question about risk appetite. And um, uh, I think the short answer is that our modelling is risk neutral. Um, there are two things, though, that sound very similar to each other, but are in fact different. Um, so one of them is um, I am a risk averse donor. And therefore, I want to have higher confidence uh, in, in the outcomes that I'm achieving. Uh, another one is, I'm a risk-neutral donor, but I'm also a sceptic about whether these things are going to have uh, the outcomes that they claim. So if you are a sceptic, it often looks a lot like being risk-averse. And the reason for that is that as a sceptic, you might say that um, your prior, your sort of default assumption, is that this charity is not achieving very much. And then you need a lot of evidence to move your opinion towards believing that it is having whatever it claims, uh, be it in expectation or, or, or whatever. And so um, those, are, those are two different things. Um, the SoGive approach by default is um, we're often quite sceptical, um, but we are risk neutral. Um, sometimes we do work with individual major donors and we uh, subject them to a values survey. And uh, if we you know, discover things about their risk appetite or uh, about their level of scepticism, then um, you know, we might adjust our recommendations accordingly. Um, but for the default analysis, um, that is risk neutral, but sceptical. So far, we've talked um, a lot about the uh, shallow analysis and the, the two question method. I was going to ask as well 
uh, where does the the deeper analysis fit into that? Uh, under what uh, situations might you want to do that, and what would that look like? Um, normally, we'll only do um, deeper analysis when uh, we've got a serious donor interest in an area. Uh, so this might be, for example, if a major donor or, or a partner organisation that's going to move a material amount of money, something like that, uh, is interested in, in a particular question, um, that, that's when we would look into that in more depth. Uh, and the reason for that is partly a sort of marshalling our own resources, um, but also because we want to be considerate to the charities that we're talking to. In-depth analysis probably means that we're going to to take up somebody else's time as well. And uh, we we really only want to do that if it's at least got a chance of being worth their while. So yes, that uh, that's the situations in which we would do the in-depth analysis. Do you see some future out of interest where you start talking to people like GiveWell and animal charity evaluators and start centralising or aggregating your findings? I think there's there's a bigger question, which I don't think I quite know the answer to, about um, how much uh, is it good for the world if um, people uh, collaborate more so that we don't reinvent the wheel? And how much is it good for the world if uh, people stay separate so that um, you can have proper independent review of the work that's been done by somebody else? Um, and and the sort of a bit of both has been happening in terms of how SoGive relates to these other organisations. Um, and so I don't think I know the, the, the optimal answer to that question. So as some listeners might know from our last episode with, with Eve, um, effective altruism's mission seems very similar in the idea of, on the one hand, uh, there's this motto of doing good better, um, not just donating to charity because it does good, but donating to the most impactful charity. So for every pound given, uh, you, you can have uh, as much impact as, as possible. How does SoGive relate to effective altruism and where might you disagree with uh, approaches or, or attitudes? Um, there's a big overlap between the SoGive philosophy and the uh, effective altruism philosophy. And, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, one of the many origin stories that you could come up with for, for SoGive um, is that uh, I read Toby Ord's 2009 paper, The Moral Imperative Towards Cost-Effectiveness. Um, and I thought, you know, what would... Uh, be a, a startup organisation that encapsulates that article, um, and and I think that SoGive is probably probably is that that organisation. Um, and um, for those of you who who don't know the history of effective altruism, um, you know that that paper was also very important in driving the effective altruism movement as well. And so, so you know, SoGive and effective altruism share a love of cost effectiveness. Um, uh, I, I think maybe a, a difference, perhaps, is um, in thinking about cause prioritization. Um, so one of the things that's very distinctive about effective altruism is that um, effective altruists rightly think that um, choosing between causes shouldn't be solely down to gut feel, but rather analysis and evidence can be used to help choose between different cause areas. Um, so if you choose, think of a cause area such as, I don't know, um, curing cancer or tackling climate change or whatever else, 
Um, choosing between these needn't just be based on gut feel. It can be based on analysis as well. Um, and this is something that um, that both SoGive believes and uh, effective altruism believes as well. Um, the, the thing I'm about to say next is probably going to be disputed by some people uh, in the effective altruism movement. Um, some people in the effective altruism movement would agree and others would disagree with this characterization of effective altruism. Um, but uh, effective altruism perhaps tends to focus more on those cause areas that it perceives to be the highest impact ones. Um, and in a way that makes sense. I mean, of course, you should focus most on the cause areas that are, that are highest impact ones. Um, and um, so give to a certain extent uh, uh, follows this in that, you know, where we are maybe working with a major donor and, and they're really looking to us for uh, where are the highest impact cause areas, then, then we, we too would do that. Um, something that is perhaps a difference, um, maybe, is that we believe that lots of the analytical tools that we find so useful in coming to answers within the highest impact cause areas are also useful in the not as high impact cause areas as well. Um, and we think that that's valuable, A, because um, it's not totally obvious that the highest impact cause areas really are the highest impact cause areas. And maybe some unexpected piece of new information will come up that means that the things that we think aren't the highest impact cause areas are in fact high impact uh, for reasons that aren't so obvious. Um, so you mentioned human rights, for example, and um, you know this is an area where um, so give plans to expand our analysis and um, you know maybe that's going to 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 be really high impact uh, for reasons that uh, aren't aren't immediately obvious. Um, so. You know, that's one reason. Um, and another reason is that even if the not highest impact cause areas uh, really are not the highest impact cause areas, uh, enabling people to do more good within those cause areas is still a good outcome. So all of those things are things that, that SoGive thinks are interesting and valuable. Um, and, and that's probably a, a difference between at least some in the EA movement. I was waiting to hear something really controversial, Ben, and I'm sorely disappointed because that all sounded very reasonable. <laughs> um, let's talk about your experience starting a non-profit. I guess one question to ask is, um, having gone through this, what would you say or would you expect the major differences to be between starting a non-profit and some for-profit enterprise are there challenges that are unique to uh, one or the other? I think I'd differentiate between three types of startup. Um, it's, it's really coming down to funder beneficiary separation in a way. So one of them is um, uh, where the funder and the, the beneficiary are aligned. So this is a typical for-profit startup. Um, another one is a sort of traditional charity where you've got um, uh, a sort of beneficiary goal or a beneficiary stakeholder that you're trying to optimise for. And you've also got a donor to keep happy. And then you've got uh, the worst of the lot, uh, which is the no-give model. Um, and, and, and others as well, I imagine, where you've got um, three 
things that you're trying to keep happy. So one of them is, um, you know, SoGive has been funded in the past, so you have to, you know, justify yourself to to the funders of SoGive. Um, then you've also got your your impact goals of making the world a better place, and thirdly, you've got your clients. Um, so um, uh, those are the, the sort of the three categories that that I would distinguish between. Um, I think the uh, sort of one of the the biggest lessons from uh, my experience with SoGive is um, don't don't do that three way approach that SoGive did. Um, it's, it's just horrible. I mean, it's just <laughs> really really painful. Um, so so that's really really tough. And and you know just try not to do that um, ever if possible. Um, uh, and yeah, I think, um, you know, it's, it's a much, you know, I, I also have, uh, entrepreneurship experience outside of SoGive doing other things as well. And when your focus is like in, in a for-profit context, when your focus is entirely on, okay, we've got a potential client here, or we've got an existing use set of users and, um, everything is aligned, you know, everything is focused, um, we know what it looks like to to make that that client happy um and then we just we just do it and and all of our focus is on that it's such a wonderful experience it's just so much nicer um so much nicer than the tensions between having impact goals and keeping client happy goals um which won't always be aligned that's a fantastic tip there simplify the number of interests you need to uh satisfy so that's one pretty major uh, challenge it sounds like you faced. Were there any other big hurdles that you um, found yourselves tackling that you thought were unexpected or surprising in setting up SoGive? I mean, I could. there were lots of hurdles, um, but I don't think they're very interesting ones. I think they're very sort of standard things that happen when um, you go through a, a sort of startup process um, uh, and... Um, you know, we had, it was hard work getting funding and, you know, there was lots of, lots of time and effort that went into that. And there was lots of difficulty and hard work as well around things like, um, you know, how do we find the right uh, product market fit? Um, So all of these things uh, were were difficult. Um, uh, You know, sometimes finding the right talent has been hard work. Uh, All of these things are, uh, have been challenges for us, um, but I don't think that's a very so give specific challenge. I think that uh, lots of other entrepreneurs will say the same things. So, um, what piece of advice would you give to somebody who is also looking to be entrepreneurial, maybe in the nonprofit sector, and especially um, how would you uh, help people decide between uh, you know setting up their their own startup and joining an existing organization? Um. I think it's very important to raise that question. Uh, there, there is a term that you hear kicking about in the space sometimes, which is heropreneurship. Uh, so it's this idea that, you know, you, you kind of uh, uh, sort of almost suggestive that there's an element of, of ego going on when people set up their own organisation. Uh, and maybe um, if they'd simply, um, you know, worked within another organisation, you know, this might have been a, a better way forward. Um and uh, I think that's uh, that's a, a very uh, valid concern that often arises. Um, uh, 
the one of the so if your listenership is is largely uh people who are currently uh, undergraduates or, or or graduates or students at the moment um i think it's uh uh unlikely that they should want to go straight into entrepreneurship um so it, that could be the different if for example maybe they've been doing a phd and they've got some research and the research leads towards entrepreneurship that might be a good way forward um but um but yes if you're an undergraduate i i think it's uh unusual to have a good reason for going straight to entrepreneurship um likely most likely um it's going to make more sense for you to do something for at least a few years and have some other experience um and then then do it it's still you know there could be still some good entrepreneurship even when you're still quite young you know even when you're still sort of 23 25 um these are still very young ages um and and you can still do some stuff with a bit of experience um i wouldn't that's not a hard and fast rule doesn't mean that there's no good ways of doing good uh entrepreneurship be it charity entrepreneurship or, or any other type of entrepreneurship uh, when you're still an undergraduate um but uh but you should at least start off with a skeptical default assumption or a skeptical prior i feel obliged to mention at this point that if you are curious about charity entrepreneurship then there is a charitable startup incubator called charity entrepreneurship which you might um like to check out for more information uh, and I was going to say as well, it definitely sounds as well from from your experience that you've benefited um, from having this background in finance and this analysis and the the skills you you develop there as well. And I guess the perspective as well, right, to care about cost effectiveness and financial accounts and the like. I think as well, um, I, I spent a couple of years as a senior strategy consultant. And um, that, as well as the finance experience, means that uh, it's easier for me to to do a to have the right thinking tools to do a survey of the space before I enter it. Um, and I think, you know, you, you, it's still possible to do this even as an undergraduate in principle, but, um, you know, you want to be able to conceptualise what is already happening in this space before you start creating something new in it. Um, and if you can very clearly articulate, here's the gap, then it may still make sense for you to, to do that entrepreneurship. So one very obvious question to ask now is how can listeners get involved with SoGive? Um, so uh, we used to have a very easy model for getting uh, involved as a volunteer analyst. Um, uh, we had events that happened twice a month. Anyone could pop in and take part and do some of the shallow analysis. Um, we now have a new approach, uh, partly triggered by uh, COVID-19, partly triggered by um, so gives evolution as well, um, where we uh, recruit uh, a smaller group of individuals um, to um, to take part as as longer term uh, volunteer analysts. And so, um, listeners uh, are very welcome to uh, apply. Um, the The next time that this happens will probably be a good few months from now because we only have a, a handful of of intakes uh, uh, every now and then. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, where, where somebody has a you know, particularly good fit because, you know, perhaps their, their educational background or something, um, has, um, 
uh, you know, is, is particularly useful for us, then um, we will accept those applications outside of our normal cycles. And, uh, you know, they're welcome to send in a speculative application um, uh, simply by emailing me on sanjay at sogiv.org. Fantastic. Um, so I think this might be the most important question of, of the interview, Sanjay. Um, you are rarely seen without this famous red scarf, uh, which you're, <laughs> you're wearing right now. Um, I'm really curious to know, what's the story there? <laughs> um, I, I feel like I should have a better story. Um, <laughs> like it makes me want to make up a story whenever I get asked this question. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm part of a secret club and uh, everybody in it has a different coloured scarf. And, you know, a red scarf, it means you've uh, killed someone or something like really, really exotic like that. Um, but it's nowhere near as exciting as that, I'm afraid. Um, it's, it's really just that, um, you know, uh, I originally started wearing it because um, I lived in Edinburgh and, and Edinburgh is quite a chilly place. Uh, it's a very nice place, actually. But um, uh, yes, if you're, if you're used to the sunny south of England, then, um, you know, uh, I, I found myself uh, wanting to, to wear a scarf in February and then in March it wasn't warm yet and then in April it wasn't warm yet and then in May it wasn't warm yet. And then I, it, it sort of grew from there as sort of... Um, uh, uh, I was wearing a red one uh, at one stage just because that's what I happened to pick up uh, in in a shop cheaply, um, and so yeah, it sort of it just started as uh, as a sort of running joke, like people were taking the <laughs> mic, saying, you know, Sanjay, you're always wearing this red scarf, uh, and then I was just enjoying the fact that there was this running joke, so I just kept on wearing it, and then um, it almost became a sort of part of the Sanjay brand, part of my mm-hmm. identity. <laughs> I'm always seen um, with uh, with this red scarf. So um, you know, if you we're not so active on Twitter, but um, there is a, a, a so give Twitter handle. But my personal one is at Sanjay Red Scarf. Um, my GitHub is Sanjay Red Scarf. Um, so it becomes convenient now. You know, if I if I want to be a distinctive Sanjay, there's many other Sanjays in the world, but not many Sanjay Red Scarf people. So let's let's ask the the final two questions we ask all of our guests. Um, the first one is, what is uh, a thing that you have changed your mind about? I find this a difficult question because um, I I struggle to find things where I've had a sort of clear changing mind moment. Um, you know, and it has happened. You know, I I I suppose in a in a sort of prosaic sense. Uh, prior to Trump's election, I thought that the probability that he would be elected was 45%. And afterwards, I changed that to 100%. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's sort of clear, sudden, clear change of my mind. Um, there's there's very little where I've, I've actually, you know, clearly, suddenly changed my mind. And then the very last question, uh, which is hopefully a bit easier to answer, is what are three books or articles or pieces of media that you would recommend to anyone who wants to find out more? Um, so uh, one that I've mentioned, which was a, an inspiration for um, for SoGive, is Toby Ord's um, uh, paper, 2009 paper, The Moral Imperative Towards Cost Effectiveness. Um, I, I found that actually quite easy to read, um, but... Um, uh, if you want something more digestible, there are also other articles that take that content and and make it uh, a little bit easier to digest. 
Um, uh, another thing that would be relevant uh, if you're interested uh, in SoGive's work is um, is SoGive's blog. So SoGive has a blog which is thinking about charity dot blogspot.com. Um, and uh, lastly, um, you could uh, sign up to be on the SoGive mailing list. Um, and so we are currently in the process of of reviewing and rethinking um, how that works. Um, but uh, one of the things that we have been doing is doing a weekly roundup of what's happening in the charity news. Um, and so we, we sort of identify things like, ah, oh, you know, this is happening in the charity sector or that's happening in the charity sector, together with a little bit of of commentary that we think would be relative, re- relevant from a donor's perspective um, using the SoGive mindset. Sanjay Joshi, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Sanjay Joshi on evaluating charities and non-profit entrepreneurship. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Sanjay. There you'll find links to the articles and resources Sanjay mentioned, as well as to the SoGive website itself. If you found this episode interesting, you might also want to check out two of our previous conversations. Episode 11 with Eve McCormick and episode 8 with George Rosenfeld. As always, it would be great if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. If you have constructive feedback, there's a link on the website to an anonymous feedback form. Or you can send us an email at feedback at hearthisidea.com. Finally, if you'd like to support the show more directly, you can also leave a tip by following the link in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening.